In the previous piece, I talked about the general character of existentialism, both in its historical formation, right, the mid-century moment and the way it was retroactively applied to or used to characterize works by writers such as Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, <clears throat> and also how the origins of existentialism in this sort of moment of crisis is an indicator of, of existentialism as a responsive school of thought. That is, it responds to senses of placelessness, homelessness, um, of the spirit, of, 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 of the soul, but also um, how it reckons honestly and often with very dispiriting kinds of insights, uh, reckons with the human condition uh, after World War II, after two world wars, and so on and so forth. But really, one of the things that I wanted to underscore and really wanted to draw out in that opening piece was this sense of existentialism being, uh, being oriented by or rooted in our embodied presence to the world. This is something, as I said, <clears throat> that Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir really bring out of, of one another, right? That, that Beauvoir's revision of Sartre's uh, existential phenomenology or existential philosophy puts the body front and center in terms of our relation to the world, both the embodiment of the world and our embodiment as subjects. So that relation, the existential meanings, the meaning of life and who and what we are emerges from that presence to the world, right? The world's presence to us and our presence as embodied creatures to that embodied world. And in that exchange, in that clash, in that connection or contact is produced meaning about who and what I am and what is my place in the world, as well as what other possible places and meanings can be. For me, this is an important characterization because it gives us a frame through which we can read historical figures. That is, we can read other writers through this frame and say, you know, how in an existential framing, how in an existential way of thinking about uh, race and about gender, about sexuality, how does an existential frame help us see some of the depth of meaning that's at stake in these kinds of questions and these kinds of philosophical or theoretical issues? So the first text we're dealing with and what I want to talk about today is the opening chapter to W.B. Du Bois's Souls of Black Folk. Souls of Black Folk, uh, as, as I say every time I teach it and talk about it, is the cornerstone, is the foundation piece of the African-American intellectual tradition. It is just that important. It's, it covers such a range of issues to begin with. But even in its coverage of, of such a range of issues, it has uh, a depth and coherence that is almost unmatched. It's almost unmatched in its scope, that it, you know, it ends with an evocation of the spirituals and questions of religion and so forth, but it begins with the, the existential condition of black life. And that's the part that we really talk about. Right, so we just read uh, the opening chapter. We don't read the full book, although I think the existential dimensions as they unfold across the chapters is an incredibly interesting 
project to take on? You know, how does the existential situation of the opening chapter of souls, of our spiritual strivings, how does that animate discussions of education, of economy, um, of music, and so forth? <clears throat> but if we focus on the opening chapter, there's a number of things that stand out. Uh, one is, of course, his opening paragraph. Really, I think the opening two paragraphs are 90% of the story of the whole book, right? That it starts with this question, what is it, how does it feel to be a problem? It's both how does it mean, what does it mean to be a problem, and how does it feel to have a problem, and what are the consequences of this meaning and feeling of being a problem, right, for the formation of black subjectivity. And he starts out, and I think this is so important, Du Bois does not start out with questions of terror. He does not start out by saying like, look, you know, the, to be black in the world is to be under constant threats of violence. And he will talk about these things across his life's work. But he starts out souls, and this is so interesting to me, he starts out souls with what it means to live in an interracial space. That is, what does it mean to be black in a world that is largely white people, right? And this is the part of Du Bois as a thinker that is a New Englander that is, is talking about his life in the Berkshires and his life at Harvard and not, say, for example, his great foil in his early work, Booker T. Washington, who grows up in a completely different scenario, right? He grows, he's born, you know, in the, uh, enslaved and, you know, remembers the moment of liberation and has to create in this a different kind of interracial world, but also a largely uh, uh, segregated black world. He has to, uh, Washington has to negotiate different questions around interracial, interraciality. But for Du Bois, he's surrounded, as he says in that first paragraph, or as he indicates in that first paragraph, of the first chapter, he's surrounded by well what we might call well-meaning white people. All that I fought at Mechanicsville, as I always say, that's the, that's the turn of the century version of I marched with King, right? These Southern atrocities are so terrible. Um, that's that, you know, we're gonna bring up police violence or Black Lives Matter protests. And it's just this way of well-meaning white people uh, in their well-meaning and in their attempts to sort of connect across the what he calls at the beginning of the second chapter of Souls, uh, the color line, the way white people try to connect with black people around a sense of shared outrage. But as Du Bois points out, and I've always thought that this was an incredibly um, direct but also very subtle move that he makes is to say what underlies all of these moments of connection and maybe even senses of solidarity is a common understanding of black people being a problem. You know, how does it feel and what does it mean to be a problem? Right? He says, what is it, how does it feel to be a problem? What does it mean is also what he's demonstrating across the chapter, especially those first two pages. And when you think about what does it mean to be a problem, that leads directly into his first critical concept in the book, which is the veil. Because what it means to be a problem is to have a veil between myself and the world. That's the, the, the very close, I believe, uh, or sorry, the very opening of the first paragraph, is that there's, there's the distance between myself and the world. 
right? The world that knows me and myself who knows the world, there's a distance there. And it's a distance that is not simply a human distance around interiority and exteriority, but instead a difference that's marked by this question. You know, you are not a statement that then follows with questions. The statement is you are a problem. The question is, how do you feel about being a problem? What does it mean that you are a problem? Who asks that and how they ask it? is critical of course anytime we're going to get into the to the to the meaning of those questions and Du Bois asks them of himself what does it mean and how does it feel for me Du Bois as a black person to know myself to be a problem in an interracial world and that's where he starts off with the childhood anecdotes that demonstrate this critical concept, most important concept, uh, maybe in the African-American intellectual tradition, at least for the first half of the 20th century, double consciousness. That double consciousness is generated from everyday experience is for me part of what marks the existential dimension of Du Bois's opening chapter and Du Bois's own generation of critical concepts. Because if you recall from the first piece uh, on what is existentialism and why black existentialism, I said that this notion of lived experience, right, this space of an embodied presence to an embodied world, is a space of history and politics intervening on the body and the, the social, political, and cultural dynamics of the world. But it's also in that medium, in that space of lived experience, where we develop in an existential context, develop critical concepts. And that's exactly what Du Bois does in the opening chapter. He generates the critical concepts of veil and double consciousness, and I would also say the color line, which is in the second chapter, but it may as well be in the first. He generates these critical concepts out of a description of lived experience. And that's the lived experience of when he is, is a young boy and exchanges cards with his classmates. And the white girl says, you know, I don't want your card, you're black, I'm white, we don't exchange cards. And he says, that's when I realized that I was a problem. That's when I realized I was different. That's when I realized I didn't belong. You know, whatever kind of vocabulary you want to use. And he says, this is this, exist this existential pivot, right? This moment of determining in some ways the interior life of being black is this exact moment. And he says, you know, what he was committed to was being better than everybody else, better grades, you know, better exam scores, uh, run faster. And he says, you know, beat their stringy heads, which is, for me, just this, this fantastic phrasing uh, from, from the opening, cha uh, opening uh, chapter. But he also says, you know, other classmates of mine, other boys, uh, became uh, sycophantic. They became consumed with bitterness. They became lost and adrift because for him, right, this is this relationship, interestingly, between uh, world making and the way the world makes us. He's saying, like, look, the white gaze, that outside, is trying to make black people have an interior sense of inferiority. The struggle against that, that's the second side, the, the other side of double consciousness. That struggle then to, to resist that, or even just the, the capacity to respond to that imposition of the white gaze that wants to instill a sense of inferiority. 
right, and vulnerability inside, not just as a social structure or an economic structure, but inside the lives, the psyche and consciousness of black people. There's also that other side of double consciousness that negotiates that gaze, negotiates it through sycophancy, through, through rage and bitterness, or through, in Du Bois's own self-description, uh, the, the desire to be better to prove, not necessarily to prove that they were wrong, but to defeat the white gaze and to, to neuter its power over him. But that all flows from this idea of being a problem and what it means to be a problem, I think, comes to life in that moment of embodied lived experience, that interracial embodied lived experience in which double consciousness is brought out into the foreground so that we see it and we see its dynamics and we see its capacity uh, and its voracious appetite, its desire to consume, right? its capacity to consume black people, right? the white gaze. And, but double consciousness you know, is, is both a curse and a gift. Right? The curse is that one has to engage in this struggle, that the recognition of one's interior life is a constant battle and often fruitless because of the power of the white gaze, because it's not just individual, right? It's institutionalized. The white gaze is, is part of the entire social, political, and cultural structure of an anti-black world. But there's, there is, however, the resistance to that, right? Or the capacity to process and think through that. And so that's, you know, that, that, that interplay of the two parts of double consciousness are what lead me in, in discussing this or explicating this in, a, in an existential, uh, existentialist context to think of that interior life and the life of the gaze, right? Inside and outside the veil, the two sides of double consciousness. Thinking about those as the clash of embodied presence to the world, right? That's that's the, the meaning-making and meaning formation, but also to see them as the hyphen in the phrase African-American, if we put a hyphen between African and American, that really there he's talking about what it means to exist as the hyphen. So what is the existential site of the opening chapter of Souls of Black Folk, it's the hyphen between African and American. It's not his phrase, it's, you know, the turn of the century, it's a phrase that's not gonna become, you know, part of our vernacular for decades and decades and decades, almost a century. But if we think of that phrase, African-American, we can see the existential moment is that moment of the hyphen, where it's like American being comprised of anti-blackness and the white gaze, and African being the interior life of a black person or of black people generally. And that hyphen is the thing that joins them together, but also creates a distance between them. That distance between African and American that the hyphen marks, right, is the capacity for resistance, the kinds of responses that Du Bois has as a person to the experience of double consciousness, to the experience of the veil when that little girl refuses his card and he says, I wanna beat them on the exam, I wanna beat them in a foot race and I wanna beat them literally about the head. So forms of resistance and forms of processing the alienation that is induced by double consciousness. And sometimes that processing is really despairing in the case of sycophancy, the internalization of the white gaze, or what comes to believe what white people say about them. Right.
moment. But it's also that moment of, of marking a relationship, right? That the resistance and the distance, the, the fact that, that re resistance is opened up by the distance of the hyphen, is also the presence of the American and the African in the same phrase, right? Is the way the hyphen also keeps them together so they can't be disentangled. They're both entangled and disentangled at the same time, right? They can't be one or the other. The white gaze isn't all-encompassing, but also the interior gaze of the African is not self-sufficient, right? The hyphen means these two things come together. So where I want to go with this is, first of all, to just show in one demonstrated reading how existentialism is a sensibility and an interpretive frame that allows us to take a historical text that predates the phrase existential or existential thinker. It allows us to go back to, to historical texts and read them as existential texts. It's a, it's a power of interpretation, right? When you have clarity on the kinds of issues that something like existentialism is. But also to generate some really important vocabulary that becomes central to, especially Jean-Paul Sartre's existentialism, but from a black intellectual tradition. Because Sartre absolutely has, you know, the gaze as a central part of his own work. But for him, that gaze is not the white gaze putting him behind the veil. That's why it's important that existentialism be understood as a method in an interpretive frame rather than a doctrine that has all of these things attached to it. That the gaze works in multiple kinds of ways. And part of our task as intellectuals, whether we're readers or, or, or writers or just in a conversation about this stuff, is to understand how these concepts like the gaze and somebody like Sartre get fundamentally modified when they're put into contact with somebody like Du Bois, right? We'll also see as we go on how Fanon puts Sartre into contact with his own existential phenomenology, right? His own description, Fanon's descriptions of the very same kinds of places Sartre was, right? In France and what it means to be black instead of white there. But with Du Bois, what we see is how the gaze is not just a sort of neutral kind of exterior gaze, but is instead a gaze that is racialized, that creates double consciousness, that creates a veil, and therefore is a gaze that is both internalized as a matter of course in an anti-black world by both white people and by black people. And the struggle against that white gaze for black people, that is the site of of black liberation to struggle against this gaze. And that's what, you know, not only Souls of Black Folk is about, but going back, um, uh, on, uh, back a few years to the Conservation of Races essay, right, where Du Bois first articulates, or maybe not first, but articulates really directly this notion of the Negro Academy. It says, you know, in order to conserve race, we have to have the Negro Academy, right? That's that moment of like, if, if the white gaze is institutionalized, it's just a part of our everyday world, our education systems, our media, our everyday speech, and our every structure of our everyday social interactions. What is it that we can do so that that African resistance across the hyphen to the American, right? What is that resistance to the white gaze and all of its decimating and destructive power? Like, where can we draw resources for that? The Negro Academy is one of his answers, 
right? But Souls of Black Folk in that opening chapter is largely dedicated to saying like, you know, the setting up the formal conditions of why something like that would be important. Why would the Negro Academy be important in the first place? Well, there's the sort of general, you know, it's important for, you know, black people to learn about black history and black life. Yes, but why is that important? I think that first chapter gives a really interesting existential answer that it's a part of that resistance across the hyphen from behind the veil in the situation of double consciousness, give that sense of resistance, right? And some resources and some energy so that one isn't like Du Bois, sort of struggling alone. It was purely his will and his personality and his kind of a, a defiant character that led him to, to respond to this white girl in this way. He could easily have responded completely differently, right? And he himself says that. But something like the Negro Academy or different ways that Du Bois talks about education and souls of black folk, I think has to be framed around this question of the hyphen, right? How do, how do, how do African-Americans move from the African to the American and back? Well, only through some form of, of constructing, building up, fortifying, however one wants to say it, a sense of the African and the African-American so that the Amer the intrusion of the American, right, which for him is the white gaze, the, the intrusion of the white gaze on the black psyche meets resistance and resilient resistance, deep resistance, thick resistance, right? Resistance that doesn't go away simply because of the relentlessness of the white gaze, because the white gaze is relentless. That's part of it being hard-baked into our very institutions and our very habits as an anti-black society. In order to resist that 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 endless kind of um, um, assault on blackness, is to to fortify that sense of the African and the African American. So that movement across the hyphen is both resistant when that's intrusion of the white gaze. But I think even just as much as that resistance to the intrusion of the white gaze is the way the fortification of the African and African American then is capable of the revolutionary action that is going to be necessary to overcome, modify, or even just uh, transform in some fundamental way the structure of double consciousness, which has meant nothing but harm and expend unnecessary expenditure of all sorts of energies for African Americans. One has to be able to move out into the American from the African with force and insight and energy and capacity. And for me, that's why education is so important for Du Bois, both with the Negro Academy piece um, of the Conservation of Races essay, but also in the chapter, second, you know, second chapter and chapters that follow of Souls of Black Folk. Right? His critique of, of Booker T. Washington is, is manifold, but I've always thought that one of them is that Booker T. Washington's idea of education does not sufficiently build up this notion of the African and African-American such that black people can enter the white gaze and encounter the white gaze with the resistance it needs. That's not a matter of sort of steeled will, right? Or relentlessness of energy, which Du Bois uses to describe himself as a child. But it's going to come with real substance. It's going to come with real confidence. It's going to come with real, for lack of a better way of putting it, real belief in the capacity of black people to defeat everything that wants to kill them. 
kill them from the inside, not from the outside. And for me, this is a staging ground ground of ex black existentialism as not just a psychological phenomenon or sort of generation of critical concepts, but also the way black existentialism ends up playing a really important and, and singular kind of role in a vision of a revolutionary present and future.